0: Good morning. It's good to see everyone. We got a handful of visitors with us this morning, and we're glad you are with us. I got to tell you, I uh, I got here twenty minutes early today, and somehow I've been five minutes behind since I got here. I don't know what happened. Have you ever had mornings like that? And I was running around before class started. I was running around before service started, and I'm not really sure what miracle of time happened in the intermediate there. But. We're here, and that's all right. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we are studying perhaps the most important sermon recorded in Scripture. Last week we talked about the Beatitudes and what it means to be blessed, what it means to live the blessed life, or as we call it, the good life. And Jesus gave us nine prescriptions for how to live the good life. When we saw that the life Jesus calls good is not necessarily what what you and I typically think of as good, but He calls us to reconsider our priorities, to reconsider the ways of thinking about what it means for life to be truly good. And next week, kind of just continuing in our series next week, when we start getting to the heart of the lesson, in verse 19 and 20 is when Jesus tells His disciples what it means to be truly righteous. Not just to be righteous as the Pharisees and the scribes believe they are righteous, but how to actually be truly righteous. And so squeezed in between these two teachings on on what it means to be truly blessed and what it means to be truly righteous, Jesus calls us to be two more things. To be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now why does he say that? What does it have to do with being blessed or being righteous? Well, that's what we will unpack this morning. I know it was read earlier, but I want to begin by looking at the verse just a little bit before it, by backing up just a little bit. Again, remember we talked about the Beatitudes or those blessed are statements that end end in verse, we'll say, 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One of the major kind of themes, the overarching concepts from from Jesus' sermon here is going to be a reversal of how things are, or a a reorganization, we would even say, of how things work. If you've ever heard other people preach on the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes they call it the backwards kingdom, or the upside-down kingdom, or the inverted kingdom. He's going to reorganize how things work, how we view the world. He says, if, if you are persecuted for following me, if you are bullied for my sake, if you are, if you are told by people that your life will because God doesn't love you, that's not true. In fact, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I think this is one of those passages where it, it helps to sort of picture the scene and you can imagine Jesus sort of standing, not really on a mountaintop, but kind of at the base of the mountain, up on a hill, facing the crowds. And, and imagine, if you can, visualize the kind of people who typically followed Jesus. The people who worked the street, the people who worked really out, either walking the street and were homeless, or the people who worked really just to make enough to, to feed themselves for one day. The laborers, people who were fishermen, people who were farmers, And Jesus says, I know you look around and you see that the world is ruled by people who have money. He says, but it is the poor who will inherit the kingdom. I know you see the people around you who are fat and happy without a care in the world, but Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst, not for food, not for water, but for righteousness. He says, the world is led by by men who keep power by being harsh, wrathful, hard-hearted by starting wars and conflicts. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure, blessed are the peacemakers. He tells the crowd that the kingdom which he is bringing is so radically different. And so the people who are going to be a part of this kingdom, the people who he is calling to follow him, the people who are going to be his people will be different. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people put a lamp light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all the house to be salt and to be light mean, means to be actively part of the kingdom jesus is bringing it's a small detail, but, but don't overlook it, that when Jesus does not say he is the salt of the earth, he says you are the salt of the earth. And in John 8, 12, Jesus calls himself the light of the world, but here he is saying that we too share in that light. He says we are also the light, that we share in Jesus' work. In Revelation 5:10, it says those who worship the Lamb cry out, saying, You ransomed people for God. You have made them kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It says, They will reign. They will reign with the Lamb. They will reign with Jesus. John says again in Revelation 26, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him forever. Jesus is calling us to share in His kingdom, to share in the ruling of His kingdom. To to be a follower of Jesus does not simply mean to to latch yourself onto His coattails and sort of drift along in your life. To be a follower means to work alongside Him. To to call yourself a Christian means to, to, to plug in and join Jesus in His mission of changing and ultimately saving the world. Because that is what Jesus came to do. The Beatitudes are the kind of people he calls to do that. The poor in spirit, the people who mourn, the people who are meek, the people, yes, even the persecuted. But here in these next few verses, Jesus tells us the way, the way that these people carry it out, how Christians participate in this kingdom. And he gives two object lessons, two illustrations for what the work of the church ought to look like. He starts by saying, we are to be salty, salty. Jesus tells his disciples they are the salt of the earth. Salt in ancient times was incredibly valuable. If you've ever heard a lesson on this, you've heard them just extol the value of salt in the ancient world in these early kingdoms. Aside from precious metals and silvers, it was possibly the most popular or precious commodity of Jesus' time. Salt was inherently valuable. And sure it's important today. It's it's a kitchen staple used in cooking and baking. I bet most of us have a container of salt in our kitchen right now unless you have high cholesterol, and I would bet you have rarely if ever made a dish without it. Even if you do have high cholesterol. <laughs> but in the ancient world, even more so than today, it was of huge huge value. And so I want us to understand that when Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth, he is first and foremost, he is telling them you have value saying, you, you are important. You are important to what I do. You are important to God. Understand that God loves all mankind. All of humanity are called God. 1 John three one says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Jesus loves, certainly, all of mankind. All of humanity is called children of God. But even more so, Jesus tells His followers, He tells His people that you have Value. He says you're important. That that means I need you. When he when he calls us to share in his work, he's saying, You are significant. Consider that as valuable as salt is, it is of almost no practical use by itself. I mean, what good is a shaker of salt in an empty kitchen or an empty pantry? Sure, it's an essential part of seasoning any meat, steak, chicken, pork, but it would never be a dish, even a side dish by itself. I'm sure none of you have ever intentionally had a spoonful of salt. Salt by itself is is valuable. It's significant. It has value, but it is without purpose by itself. All of humanity has value and is important in God's sight, but it is in Christ that we find our true purpose. By calling His followers salt, He's calling them valuable, but He's also calling them useful, and that's an important distinction he says, first and foremost, you have value. You are loved by God. I think of really the, the laundry list of people I've talked to in the church and the people I can talk to who say, you know, I was this old when I heard for the first time from the pulpit in a church that I was loved by God. And so if you are here today, I want you to understand if you miss nothing else, that you, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your life, you are loved by God, you are valuable. But there's a second part to that. You are useful. You, you were born with a purpose. You were created with a purpose. And, and by calling his disciples salt, Jesus is saying, it is in me that you have true purpose. Salt without food is, is useless. Salt by itself is useless. And so in the same way, Christians without Christ are useless. We, we Sure, we can find a purpose. We can create a purpose for ourselves. We can make up or fabricate a reason to be on this planet. But Jesus says, I... Give you purpose. He says, your saltiness, your distinctiveness is important, it's useful. In our class tonight, we're going to talk more about Jesus' warning here against the the impact of losing your distinctiveness. When he says, How how can it be salty again? But what he's saying is that there ought to be a quality of distinctiveness. That that you, as my followers, as our people, as the church, you have value, you have a purpose consider the salt of the earth brings out the flavor it, just as salt brings out the flavor of food and, and when salted properly i don't know if you know this or not but a good steak when salted properly doesn't actually taste salty it just tastes good no one has ever as a compliment said wow this steak is so salty but it brings out the flavor in the same way he says you, you are to bring out the good things in the earth As my followers, you have a distinct quality of saltiness that only salt has. And so he warns us, if if we lose our distinctiveness, he warns that it can no longer be restored. It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Consider that in order to really fulfill our purpose, In order to truly be useful, in order for our testimony or our witness or our life, whatever you want to call it, of a Christian to have an impact on others around us, we have to have a distinctly Christian life. In order for salt to salt food, it has to taste like salt. Well, In order for Christians to be the salt of the earth, we kind of have to look and act and behave like Christians. That might sound a little simple, but what good am I What power do I have to spread the gospel if the gospel has first not changed me? How is it that I can bring somebody the good news and expect them to change their life and expect them to flip their world upside down for Jesus if not one iota of my own life has changed since coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ? How can I share with others the good news of which I have not first been convicted? There's a simple lesson they tell young preachers when you're starting out that for a scripture to speak to your church, it first has to speak to you. It has to move you. Your lesson has to first move you or it's never going to move anybody else. He says, if you're not excited about your lesson, how do you expect your audience to be? The same is true for us as Christians. Any lesson, any gospel that is to be preached, taught, or shared must first be lived. To be salt means to be useful for Christ's mission we can only be useful if we retain our distinctiveness, if we retain that Christian quality that Jesus calls us to have. To be salt means to be useful for Jesus' mission to ultimately save the world. In order to do that, in order to, to save the world, we have to be able to fight off decay. The other property of salt is, of course, that of a preservative. In saving the world, Christians are actually called to work alongside Jesus in fighting off the decay that is in the world. One of the biggest reasons salt was so valuable wasn't because it made french fries taste delicious. It wasn't because it was the perfect ingredient to guacamole, but because salt was actually a preservative. Well, we don't see this a whole lot nowadays, but if you've, if you've ever done like a hobbyist level canning or jarring, you probably know that sugar is a preservative. It works great. Well, salt also is a wonderful preservative in lack of refrigeration, electrification, all those modern things that we have. And so it's why if you go to the grocery store, every single soup or canned vegetable thing has a bajillion grams of sodium in it. It's a preservative. They they prevent unwanted microbes and bacteria from growing and developing and ruining whatever it is you're trying to store. Prevents decay. Steak with good flavor is nice, but a steak that's not spoiled is really what I'd rather have. Jesus calls us to be somewhat of a preservative. When we do our part in God's mission on the earth, we are actually helping push back against the the moral decay that exists in the world. And I understand this little part might be a bit controversial, but I would argue that for whatever reason, however we want to frame it, the world is in constant tension with God's Word. We see this from the very beginning, from the very beginning of time. Before the flood, what did God say? That that every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. He says, If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world. The world is in constant tension with the will of God in constant tension with the Word of God, with, with the mission that He's carrying out. And so Jesus actually calls us to that a part of our responsibility as Christians, part of that purpose, part of that value, comes from our ability to push back against moral decay, to protect against spoilage, to do what we can from keeping the whole thing from going rotten. In talking about the church's role in this regard, you've probably quite often heard me quote 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, which is where he says, What have I to judge the world? God judges those outside, purge the evil from within you. Expel the wicked person from among yourselves. And so you might ask, "So, So how is it if I'm not supposed to judge the world, if I'm only supposed to judge Christians, well, how is it I can go about fighting moral decay? And I guess I'll put a little bit of a disclaimer in here try not to do this very often from the pulpit, but this part is my opinion. You're welcome to agree or disagree. I'm not sure I support Christians passing laws to make non-Christians follow the Bible. I don't believe in replacing the gospel with the government, and I will never outsource to law enforcement what Christ has first called the church to do. It's not the job of the government or the president or Congress or the Supreme Court or the mayor or the district attorney to bring society in line with the Bible. It is actually the mission to which God calls the church. The church is to be the salt, to to fight decay. He says we are to be light by pushing back against the darkness. This is how we are both salt and light. But he says a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. When the church is operating properly... When we are living the gospel through our lives, and we are going and making disciples just as the king himself commands us to do, we become the city on a hill. We become a light that people can't ignore, that people that cannot be hidden. Uh, maybe I think this illustration might help what I'm saying here, maybe what I'm not saying, but you might remember, at least for me a few years, it was a few years ago, when, when the big green egg got really popular. It's this, it's this fancy smoke, thing. If you've never heard of the green egg. It's essentially this big stone egg-shaped green smoker combo grill baker thing. It costs like a thousand dollars or something ridiculous. But I remember a number of my guy friends they got one of these and the moment they did, and you might know somebody like this, but the moment they did, they became salespeople of the big green egg. Like they were like, oh you gotta have one of these. You don't even you've never grilled anything until you've grilled something on one of these big it's got 18 inches of cooking space, ergonomic handings, wheeler rollers for convenience. I can cook three pork shoulders, 18 hot dogs, 24 burgers, and a whole turkey. I'm like, okay, I mean, you don't sell them. I don't want one. Just, And I think guys are probably worse about this than women are. Like whether it's a new car or we did something to our house or we got something new, toy or an accessory for the grill, we're like, you got to have this. No, that, that what you have, it's trash. It's no good. You got to have this one. This is the real deal. And I really think it's just because we got to justify how much money we just spent on it, but that's, that's another thing. I say that because you know what nobody has ever had to convince me to get? What no one's ever had to sell to me? The concept of light. Seriously, if you've not jumped on the bandwagon, I highly recommend electrification. Household lighting. I've found lights to be a very effective feature in our home. If I ever have the choice between lights or no lights, whether it's a car, a garage, a shed, a bathroom, or a bedroom, or a basement, or an attic, I will choose the with lights option. Any adult that has ever discovered a coffee table with their shin or a pile of Legos with their feet knows the value of lights. The concept of lights sell themselves. When was the last time you saw an ad for light bulbs? Probably haven't. Sure, they got fancy ones, but that's not the point. Jesus is telling his disciples, when you are the light of the world, people will come to you. People will look at you. when You are the ones who will light the way. He says, because of you, just what you do, your behavior, because of how you live your life, he says, just by what you're doing, people will know what it means to be blessed. I think we would be much more effective living the gospel than trying to legislate it. It's enough of my opinion. If we want people to abide by God's word, if we want people to believe in Jesus... If we want others to live in accordance with what you and I believe is right, then we need to start living those things out. And I don't just mean the easy things, not just the things they talk about on TV, not just the things that make the news headlines, but all of the things out. Not just the few that we choose to talk about. All of the commands, all of the scripture. When we are truly modeling the character and behavior of Jesus, that is when the church and its mission is the most effective. Whatever survey you want, about all of them agree that the biggest reason people under the age of 40 do not go to church or do not believe in God is because they believe the church is full of hypocrites. It's true. You've probably had these conversations with family members, friends, neighbors. I'm not going there. That's where so-and-so goes, and he's just an awful person. I knew somebody who was a Christian one time, and you know, he was a really big guy in the church, but he cheated on his wife for like five years. The church thing just isn't for me. church is full of hypocrites. So it stands to reason to me that if we stopped being hypocrites, we would surely but surely draw people back to the church, back to God. If we live out the gospel, people will look at us and turn to God people will begin coming back to God and coming back to the church in droves if every single one of us lived out the gospel that we claim to believe in. Because light attracts. Just as I've said no one's had to sell me on the concept of light, light naturally attracts. If you're wandering around in the dark, you don't have to persuade anybody that you have the answer if you have a light. Jesus says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Unless you somehow went through and extinguished all the lights in a town, if you've ever been driving in the middle of the night, kind of in the rolling hills parts of the country, you see the city on the hill. It's lit up. Unless they turned off all their lights, they could not be hidden. And people are drawn to it. Because light attracts. Christians ought to attract. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That right there is what it means to be the light of the world. To live in such a way that our very lives draw people to God. Consider that nobody alive ever exemplified this more than Jesus himself. Last week in our evening discussion, it was brought up how the first thing Jesus does, the thing at the end of chapter 4, is He he goes throughout Galilee teaching, preaching the gospel, and healing every disease and affliction. And healing people. Matthew 4.24 says because of this, He was so famous, so popular, so well known, that from the whole region around, people traveled miles to bring them their sick and afflicted. Because they believed that Jesus could heal them. When was the last time somebody came from miles around because they said, you know what? The Dover Church of Christ is where people can be spiritually healed. When was the last time somebody showed up at your house and said, man, I don't know anything about you except that when people know you, they know God, and I need help. People trusted, they believed that Jesus could fight back the darkness in the world. Jesus had a light that attracted from how he started his ministry to his very last breath. What were the words of the centurion? Surely this man was the son of God. How he lived his life attracted people to him and to God. His character, his behavior, every aspect of his ministry drew people closer to God. And could the same be said of us? Does our light attract people to the church and to God? If not... Jesus provides the solution in our text. It's the last point before we'll close. In the last verse of our section verse 16, he says, "Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven." To be light means to shine. To shine so brightly that people are drawn to us, to shine so brightly that people see us as the place where people can be healed, where people can come closer to God. If we are not shining, if we are not attracting people, well the solution is simple. It's right there in the text. He says, do good works. The problem, the problem I believe, is that many of us are content with a passive faith, with what I would call a disconnected faith. We think that I can, I can believe in the God of the Bible and I can believe in Jesus and, and I can believe even that he came to save my sins, but you know what, I, I can take my private personal belief and just sort of stay over here and be in a corner by myself with it. That I don't need to worry about how I treat people. I don't need to worry about how I view the world. Jesus Jesus doesn't care about how I vote or my financial decisions or my household priorities. That's, I can just kind of have my faith over here and let all that other stuff in my life be over there. But That's foolish. Jesus' two illustrations here in these few verses. He shatters that idea to pieces. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. He says, you cannot be a passive Christian. You cannot have a private disconnected from the world faith. Salt is supposed to have a taste and a light is supposed to be seen. He said, Christians exist to have an impact on the world around us. If you're with us in VBS, what what does this mean? If I just stick my index finger in the air and I wave it around a little bit, what am I doing? It's a light. And what are you supposed to do with a light? Just let it shine. You put it under a bushel? No. Can't let the devil blow it out either, right? We're supposed to let our light shine. To be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is who Jesus calls us to be. To be salt and to be light means to, to follow Him to follow Him, to obey Him. Following Jesus begins with a decision, a commitment to accept His commands for your life. He calls us to repent from our way of living, confess the name of all names, and be baptized for the remission of sins, but it does not stop there. To be a follower of Jesus means to to be in full accordance with His Word so that you can be a part of the mission of bringing people to God. If you're with us this morning and you need the prayers of the church, if you need to repent, if you're ready to be baptized, we ask that you make this known at this time while we stand and while we sing.